Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm going to start by asking you a question. Um, who do you think has suffered most in this world? You can talk amongst yourselves, you can uh, chat about that, or you can think on that. I'll give you a few seconds to think. Who do you think has suffered most in this world? Okay, now, um, probably um, you didn't have to look very far. There's no shortage. And maybe you chose an individual person. Maybe you chose a group of people. But there is suffering and there is grief as we look around our world now and in the past and in the very distant past and as we continue our series in lamentations we reach here the middle chapter three of five in the previous two weeks we've looked at the start of the book and seen the lament over the destroyed city of jerusalem and you may recall from the talk that Jez gave a couple of weeks ago that Israel had rebelled against the Babylonian rulers and paid the price, a heavy price. They suffered two sieges just a decade apart. And the second one resulted in complete and utter devastation of Jerusalem, which included the temple, and the death and captivity of all the people and actually the end of the nation of Judah. Well, we are currently experiencing what it feels like to lose a monarch. And for many of us, that is difficult, painful, life-changing even. Imagine if added to this, we lost our homes and our nation our family and friends. What would we have left to live for? Well, for many decades, the Old Testament prophets, and especially Jeremiah, had warned Israel of the impending punishment of God, calling them to repent and to return to him. Instead, the more attractive voices held sway over the kings and the leaders and the people. And basically, the Israelites turned a deaf ear to God and a blind eye to the sin around them. And the first two chapters of this book, Lamentations, record in painful detail the suffering, the grief, the humiliation. The author is a poet. And he sets the scene in chapter 1, remembering and showing us what a ruined city, abandoned by God, actually looks like. There is a cry out to God by this personified city, the Lady Zion, pouring out grief and looking to God to actually notice all this desolation and depth 
of suffering. It is a poetic book, and the author has worked his poetry using an acrostic for chapters one and two. Each verse begins with successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet, so each is 22 verses. Now, I don't know if you have Lamentations 3 open at the moment, but it's probably a good idea if you do or can. Um, And we will look through that and read that in a moment. But just skip to the end and see. There are 66 verses. The first three lines actually use the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the next three use the second and so on. The book is actually building to the center. Something dramatic is there. It's actually quite unlike the films and stories that we are used to. We're used to things that build and build and maybe drop off and then build and build and build and then at the end, it all happens or it's all resolved. This is different. It builds to the middle and then basically it just slows down and fades out. Just as it was in the beginning. And for this great climax in the center, the author takes on the voice of the first person. He is there. He is feeling it. And we can imagine him as being an eyewitness caught up in this whole tragedy. Possibly today we might use a word like uh, a victim or a survivor. So as we hear his voice, what does he say? And who does he say it to? Amidst all this grief, suffering, desolation, pain and loss. This is what he says. Let's read chapter 3. I am the man who has seen affliction. By the rod of his wrath... He's driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he's turned his hand against me again and again, all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He's besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He's made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He's walled me in so that I can't escape. He's weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's barred my way with blocks of stone and he's made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait like a lion in hiding. He dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people and they mock me in song 
all day long. He's filled me with bitter herbs and sated me with gall. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's trampled me in the dust. I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him. It is good to wait Quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him and let him be filled with disgrace. For men are not cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men to crush underfoot all prisoners in the land to deny a man his rights before the most high to deprive a man of justice would not the Lord see such things who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Why should any living man complain when punished for his sins? Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled. And you have not forgiven. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. 
You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. You've made us scum and refuse among the nations. All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We've suffered terror and pitfalls, ruin and destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. What I see brings grief to my soul because of all the women of my city. Those who were my enemies without cause hunted me like a bird. They tried to end my life in a pit and threw stones at me. The waters closed over my head and I thought I was about to be cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry for relief. You came near when I called you and you said, Do not fear. Oh Lord, you took up my case. You redeemed my life. You have seen, O oh Lord, the wrong done to me. Uphold my cause. You have seen the depth of their vengeance, all their plots against me. Oh Lord, you have heard their insults, all their plots against me. What my enemies whisper and mutter against me all day long. Look at them. Sitting or standing, they mock me in their songs. Pay them back what they deserve, O Lord, for what their hands have done. Put a veil over their hearts and may your curse be on them. Pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. Well, did you spot the glimmer of hope? And it is just a glimmer. There's no getting away from the passionate expression of grief. The lament of the man who has seen affliction. This pain is different to him. God is actually causing it. Really? Is God doing this? Would God actually inflict destruction on his people? Even if he did say that if they carried on in their sin, he would. Would he really go through with it in the end? Well, the author of this certainly sees it that way. The language of verse 1 to 6 is a picture of a shepherd. But a rogue shepherd a shepherd that doesn't care for the sheep but seems to abuse them. And then in 7 to 9, the verses give us another picture. This is a cruel jailer with an actual purpose-built cell that allows no respite, no help and no escape. And then we see God as a hunter purposefully seeking out and destroying in verses 10 to 13. And then I think we hit the lowest point of the chapter and the book and maybe, who knows, the poet's life 
verse 14 to 18. I would describe that as just despair. There's nothing left anywhere, both now and in the future. Verse 18, all that I hoped for from the Lord, even that's gone. You can feel the tears in full flow as you read those seemingly hopeless verses. There's no memory of anything good, even in the past, just bad memories that keep flying to mind. This is the very, very lowest point, the very bottom, total and utter despair. Some of us may have been here and know this place. Some of us may be there now. It's okay, right even, to lament, to pour out our passionate expression of grief. Imagine a penguin finds himself exactly at the South Pole. And he takes a step. What direction does he go in? North. Has to be. If you've reached the very, very bottom and you decide to take a step, You can only go up. And this is verse 21. It's an act of will, a calling to mind, an intentional act of remembering. It's almost like it's dragged out. This is a painful, I am going to do this. And the poet remembers, has hope, calls to mind the compassion and faithfulness of God and even addresses God positively in verses 23 and 24. What a contrast, what a change. This is the dramatic middle. Verse 18, total and utter despair. Verse 24 and 25, full of hope. Things have been completely and utterly turned around. How? By waiting and remembering. An act of will rather than a feeling or event or circumstance. And so the chapter continues. And if the God who punishes is the God who is good then punishment cannot be the last word or the final event. There is hope of something to follow. Verse 25 and 26 give us insight into what to do. Wait quietly for salvation. God takes no pleasure from these sufferings. We see that in verse 33. 
and that's confirmed at the end of Micah as well, another prophet. In fact, I think we, it might be good to read that. That's, um, can we turn to the end of Micah? Micah chapter 7. And then we're halfway through, uh, also, verse 18. So the prophet Micah says, You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us, and you will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. This shows us, I think, that God is eternal in his love. His compassion and his mercy have no end, and he delights in those. Those are his, if you like, way of operating, his way of being. His anger and his judgments, though, they are finite. They don't come to an end. Sorry, they do come to an end. Those of us who are parents probably can relate to this quite readily because as we punish our children and discipline them, we love them, don't we? And we do it out of love. And even though they can, and maybe they do, um, make us actually angry, that anger is often short-lived. And those of us who have experience as medics or patients will know also that sometimes you have to inflict great injury in order to make good or save a life, even to the point of physically cutting out bad stuff. The consequences may continue to be carried, but the treatment and the healing can come to an end. And so now, after a brief glimmer of hope in this pit of despair, The author continues his lament. So it is just a very short peak in the whole book and even in the chapter. The lament continues, speaking to God, calling out, crying out. And as he does so, it's not long before he sinks into this depression again regarding the events that surround him. But he doesn't blame God for any injustice. We see that in verse 39. But he does protest against all the atrocities that seem to not only bring down God's people, but dishonor God himself uh, to the great joy of the enemies around. Considering for a moment a way out of this, in verse 42, it seems that God will not always forgive. It looks like we can't just say, uh, sorry. 
The people seem to have admitted their sin. Yeah, I did that. Sorry. But that's not enough. There has to be repentance. I think possibly we see some of that in our media when leaders or celebrities are caught doing something wrong and they say sorry, but then it all just carries on. Uh, Or they make excuses about why it was okay. And that, I think, is essentially something different. It's remorse. It's regret at getting caught, basically, uh, and not repentance. Repentance is actually turning around and saying, yes, I was wrong. Now I'm going to do it this way, God's way. So who should repent? The nation or the individual? Individual and corporate grief are different. And lament is good in both situations. And as we've seen recently, one event can cause both. We are in a period of national mourning. The nation is grieving as a whole. We are stopping, remembering, respecting, honouring together in grand ceremonies and in smaller ones. We come together and we mourn. But there's more to it than that. The sense of personal loss, and that's different for each of us. We have our own experiences, our own memories, our own stories, and these form part of our lament. For the author of this chapter and this book, his whole nation is gone. There's much to lament together, but there's this great personal loss which we see can be overwhelming. And in verse 49, you get a sense of that. The tears won't stop. There's no relief. And as we continue, this outpouring of grief and sorrow, this time of crying out to God, we hear for the only time in the whole book, God's voice. In verse 57, God's voice is heard to say, do not fear. That's it. Do not fear. Uh, There's nothing like it's going to be all right or look to the future or I'll come and rescue you. Um, Nothing like that. Just do not fear. So as the chapter and the poem concludes, the poet has having had a brief glimmer of hope, seeing fit to address God with frustrations and grievances, with his pain amidst all of the suffering, and in the end, prays for things to be put right as he sees them. So this chapter is like a microcosm of the book in that it's a journey through grief, not a wallowing in it. We are not to slide over grief and suffering prematurely and look for happy endings right at the start. We can't deny the troubles. 
It's the truth of the situation. You can't just forget and carry on as though nothing happened. Although we're pretty good at trying to do that. Stiff up a lip. Deal with it. Carry on. Get back to normal. We like all that. But lamentations gives us the language of lament. Chris showed us last week how. Now I think this shows us that not only can we lament, we're allowed, but we should. We should use it. We really should lament. We really should pour out our expressions of passionate grief. God is sovereign, not us. This isn't actually our world, it's God's. It's not ours to fight over. It's not ours to exploit. It's not ours to try and sort out. It's not our world, it's God's. And he has sorted it out. God has said that he will deal with sin, the rebellion against him. He's promised to wipe out evil. He is going to cut out all that is bad and leave only what is good. Which I think would be something for us to fear. I, for one, would be in the bit that's cut out. But do not fear. As Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be right with God. We can wait on his salvation. We're in a helpless and destitute state. Spiritually, we have nothing. We come with nothing. We're broken like the city and nation in this lament. All we actually have is our sin and our rebellion. And that's what we come to Christ with. And what does he offer? Forgiveness. Reconciliation, restoration, transformation, hope. Offered is perhaps too weak. Invited, perhaps better. Implored even. Imagine a doctor who has trained for many, many years to get to a point of being able to help a patient. She hopes that patients will want what is in offer. She knows the benefits. She knows the consequences of not having the treatment. She will be grieved if the most needy do not come to her, especially if it's because they consider themselves too needy. So it is with Christ. He sees our desperate need and implores us to come to him. We cannot be too needy. We do not need to sort ourselves out first. We can lament and wait on the salvation of the Lord. So lament. Lament the state of our nation, our world. Lament your individual circumstances or spiritual state. Lament is part of our journey, but it will end. 
hope. Quietly wait on his salvation. Do not fear.